pray together. Lord, your word calls us to be still and know that you are God. And by your sheer grace in Christ, many of us know you as our God and we know you, we are your people. Not because of anything we could do, but because of what Christ has done for us. In his death and resurrection, he removed all the barriers between us. And you granted us faith that we might come to you and receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life and all the promises that you've made for your children. So we give you thanks this morning that we know you. That's the blessing of the new covenant that everyone would know you. It's the your definition of eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to know you better through your word, Lord. And so as we open your word together, Lord, uh, reveal your glory to us. Uh, reveal who you are to us. May it grip our hearts deeply. Change how we think about everything. I pray for anyone who doesn't know you as their God doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, that even today you would open their blind eyes to see that he is the only one who can rescue from sin and darkness and brokenness and bring us to you. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. What kind of God runs this kind of world? That's the question Christopher Ashe asks in his book, Trusting God in the Darkness. In an average week, we might not think much about that, but there are other times when we or someone we know experience some kind of pain or sorrow or heartache, and our response to suffering will show what kind of God we believe in. The book of Job will help us clarify what kind of God is governing our world and governing our lives. Here are a few reasons why the Lord might be pleased to work among us as we seek to understand and apply this book. First, as Derek Kidner says, it is so full of the awesome reality of the living God. Job is a true story about a real man who's endured intense suffering, but ultimately it is a book from God and about God. This is a statement Matthew Henry made. And I can't find it. Oh, here it is. Sorry. Um, Were ever the being of God, his glorious attributes and perfections, his unsearchable wisdom, his irresistible power, his inconceivable glory, his inflexible justice, and his incontestable sovereignty ever discoursed with more clearness, fullness, reverence, or eloquence than in this book. Job came to know God in a deeper way through his ordeal of suffering, 
And at the end of the book, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. And by God's enabling grace, we will also grow in how well we know God by seeing how he reveals himself in this book. Second, since Job is part of God-breathed scripture, it is profitable. It is valuable and beneficial for teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Romans 15.4 reminds us that whatever was written in earlier times, including the book of Job, was written for our instruction that we might have hope. So God intends for us to learn truth from this book that will strengthen our hope in him. Third, the New Testament assumes we are familiar with the story of Job. Paul quotes from it in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. And James says this in James chapter 5, verse 11. James 5.11 says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance or the patience of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So approximately 4,000 years later, we still might hear someone say, you need the patience of Job to be married to that man. And James also assumes that We're aware not just of his patience, but the outcome or the purpose, the design of the Lord's dealings with Job in all his afflictions, and that we don't forget the Lord's mercy and compassion. Yes, we'll see his perfect wisdom and his almighty power and his sovereignty all over the place. And James says, don't miss the Lord's mercy and compassion in this story. And fourth, a careful study of this book will help us develop a more biblical view of suffering. It won't answer all of our questions. It did not answer all of Job's questions. But as God would open our eyes to his truth, we will see what kinds of answers are inaccurate and inadequate and what kinds of answers are more accurate and more honoring to God. So having introduced the book of Job, let's look at the first five verses of chapter 1, which introduce us to Job himself. So if you haven't already, turn to Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. No one knows for sure when Job lived, but the consensus is that he lived roughly about the time of Abraham, around 2000 B.C. And we aren't sure exactly where Uz is located. The two main options are Edom, southeast of Israel, or farther east in the Arabian Peninsula. The rest of verse 1 describes Job's character. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. The author tells us something in the very first verse that we will need to remember throughout the rest of the book. A large portion of Job is a discussion between Job and his three friends. The friends are convinced that Job is suffering because of his sin. And Job keeps insisting that is not the reason 
Now, Job is not perfect or sinless. There are some things he will repent of before it's all over. But the author wants us to know right up front that Job's suffering is not the result of sin. The three friends have come to the wrong conclusion. And God himself will say that these friends have not spoken what is right. Job is blameless. He is a man of integrity. His moral character is above Reproach. He is upright. He does what is right in the sight of God and man. He's honest in all his dealings. He fears God. He has a deep sense of reverent awe before God. He takes God seriously. And as a result of his fear of God, he turns away from evil. Later in Job 28, 28, it says, To man God has said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Next, we are told about Job's family. Verse 2, seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So God had blessed Job and his wife with ten children. The seven sons were old enough to have their own homes. We don't know how old the daughters were. Look at verse 4 and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job cares about the spiritual welfare of his children. His deep concern is that they might have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. To curse God is to turn away from God or renounce him, to consider him unworthy of allegiance and honor, to speak unworthy of or dishonoring things about him. We'll see more in a moment about that. And we're also told about Job's possessions in verse 3. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Job is incredibly wealthy. He owns a vast number of sheep, camels, oxen, and donkeys And he needs very many servants to take care of all the livestock he has. In fact, we're told he was the greatest man of all those who lived in the East. The next section introduces us to one of the main questions that Job's trials are designed to answer. We are told about a scene taking place in heaven that Job knows nothing about. So, verses 6 through 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, And turning away from evil. Satan is a created spiritual being. He is the chief of the fallen angels. He 
He's also known as the devil or the evil one or the accuser. The word Satan means adversary or opponent. He is the enemy of our souls. And when God asks him, well, where have you come from? Satan replies, he's been roaming around on the earth. And we're told that in 1 Peter 5, 8 as well. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. God brings up Job to Satan. This is what uh, John Piper writes about that. It's as though a diamond thief should meet the owner at the back of a jewelry store late at night. The owner says, what are you doing? And the thief answers, just walking around in your store. And the owner says, did you see our most precious diamond up there at the front? So God is the one initiating this whole situation. He brings up Job to Satan. He adds, there's no one like him on the earth. And he affirms the description of Job's character that we saw in verse 1. Satan does not try to accuse Job of sin, even though he's the accuser of the brethren. He doesn't try to argue with God that Job is a good person. He calls into question Job's motives for being good. Look at verses 9 through 11. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. In other words, Job only fears you out of self-interest. He is just a mercenary. He's like a woman who marries a rich man for his money, not because she really cares about him. No wonder he serves you. Who wouldn't serve a master who blesses his life with such an abundance of good things? He's only in it for what he gets out of it. But if you really want to know what he thinks about you, God, then take away all the benefits he enjoys. If you touch all he has, he will not only stop fearing you and stop serving you, he will curse you right to your face. Nobody, including Job, fears or serves or worships you just because you're God. People only do it because of the blessings you give. So that's Satan's challenge. There's no one on earth, including Job, who honors God because he's worthy of honor as God. It's all about what you get from God. About 2,000 years later, Paul will tell us there will be people who suppose that godliness, devotion to God, is a means of gain. In other words, their devotion to God is not because God is worthy of heartfelt devotion. It's just a way to get something they care about, namely financial gain. The obvious example of God being used to get something from him is the so-called prosperity gospel that promises health and wealth if... You have enough faith. But here's a little more subtle example I came across a couple weeks ago. 
I went to BibleStudyTools.com to print off a quote from Matthew Henry. And there was an article on the website called How Many Are the Afflictions of the Righteous by one of the contributing writers. And so I thought, oh, that looks interesting. Here's what they said. Christians throughout history have read the Bible verse, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Psalm 34, 19. And have been left with more questions than answers. First of all, why should the righteous have many afflictions? What is the benefit then of being righteous? Second, doesn't righteousness spare us from many afflictions? Isn't that a primary motivation for righteousness? Third, where's God's protection for the righteous? Why doesn't he spare them these afflictions? All valid questions, all natural for any Christian to ask. So do you hear the assumptions in that? A primary motivation to being right and doing what's right in God's sight is to be spared from affliction. That's one of the benefits of following God. And if you're not going to get that benefit, what's the point? You see how subtle that is? It's just like Satan. Job's only does what he does because you've had this hedge of protection protecting him from loss and calamity. Everything's so nice. He's got such a good life. Of course he's going to follow you. But if you take it away, he'll curse you to your face. So let's see how God responds to Satan's suggestions. Verse 12 Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. God could have said, Go back to the pit where you belong. Or he could have said, I don't have to prove anything to you. I know Job's heart. What you are saying about him is just another one of your lies. But for good and wise reasons, God permits Satan to carry out a painful test that will demonstrate whether God is the highest treasure of his heart or whether God's gifts and possessions and family are his highest treasure. God grants permission to Satan to test Job and he also sets limits on what he's allowed to do to Job. We'll also see that in chapter 2 as well. God is in ultimate control of what will happen, not Satan. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at the devastating losses Job will experience and how he responds when all his possessions and all of his children are taken away. We started with the question, what kind of God runs this kind of world Lord willing, we will grow in our understanding of what our God is like as we keep studying this book. And beyond that, we need the whole Bible's revelation of God to answer that question more fully. But for now, here is a helpful summary from the Heidelberg Catechism that was written in the 1500s. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that rain and drought, 
fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. So we just want to have that truth grip us. That reality of who God is and his sovereign control over all things, including what we call bad things, it's under God's sovereign hand. That's what's going to hold us up in our time of troubles. Well, as we close, there's another great question that will come up in the book of Job in chapter 9, verse 2. Job asked the question, says, in truth, I know this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? That question shows up about three more times in different wording. That's just the clearest wording of it. How can a man or a woman, can a human being, descendant of Adam, born with sin, be in the right before God? So how do you answer that all-important question? Here are some things you need to know about what God says about it. First, none of us is right before God. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. So not you, not me, not anybody, none righteous. None of us is acceptable in God's sight. Second, none of us can come up with a righteousness of our own. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So all of our attempts at trying to be right in God's sight are completely unacceptable. Our only hope of being right in God's sight now and on the day of judgment is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, He made him who knew no sin, God made Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Christ took on himself the judgment we deserve for our unrighteousness, our failure to do what is right in God's sight, God treated him as if he was the lawbreaker instead of us. God raised him from the dead and now will treat those who believe in Christ as though we had perfectly kept God's righteous requirements. Christ's righteousness is credited to us by faith. Philippians 3.9 says that we might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. As the hymn says it, 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his righteousness, his perfect life that he lived, that's counted to us. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, which means no matter what good shape I am spiritually, like I'm really feeling close to God, really living well these days, that's the sweetest frame. I don't trust that. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. So trust in Christ alone is your only hope of being accepted by God. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you provided a way through Christ that unrighteous sinners like us could be forgiven and declared righteous in your sight. Thank you for the miracle of that exchange that Christ took upon himself our sin. We get his righteous standing with you so that we are accepted in him now and forever. I pray again for anyone who doesn't know Jesus that they would renounce any attempts at their own righteousness and goodness and good stuff and just completely fall in the mercy of Jesus, completely trust in his death and resurrection alone. Father, I pray for those who believe in you this morning, Lord, strengthen our faith, strengthen our hope that as the day of trouble comes, maybe even this week, maybe before the day is over, that we would put our trust in you because we know you more and more. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing the goodness of Jesus.